Good morning. No one? Welcome. Thank you, Dr. Levin. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. It's March 4th, 2020. Welcome to March. It is a month of many celebrations of our colleagues in social work, child life, and nutrition and dietetics and certified nurses. So, and hopefully I haven't missed anybody. Um, I have just looked at my iPhone. There are no latest updates on uh, coronavirus uh, at this hour, but please keep posted to your email and uh, check the website and check with your direct um, leader uh, rather than inundating the incident command or doctor's call to word or Altamare with your questions as people will keep updated. So we continue in our springtime, early springtime. It's not quite springtime. I felt a little warm yesterday. Our early springtime um, series of presentations by our graduating residents, and Dr. O'Day will do the honors of introducing today's, uh, today's speaker. Thank you, Keith. Good morning, everybody. It's my pleasure to introduce our next PGY3 speaker, Dr. Christina Mamalea. Um, she graduated from Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey, for her undergraduate, followed by medical training at, and I might butcher it, Jagiellonian, yeah, I was close, um, University Medical College in Krakow, Poland. Um, she initially started her medical training as a surgeon, but then we, we in pediatrics were able to convince her that we were the right side of, uh, of, of medicine. And so she's been here um, completing her intern year and um, now residency. She is headed to Boston Children's Hospital for a Peds Critical Care Fellowship um, in July. And I think we have a great presentation in store for us. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Mamalaya. Thank you. Can everyone hear me well? No. Let's see this one. It's on. What about now? Try. Now? Is that better? Yeah. Okay, great. Um, so thank you all for being here. Um, today I will be talking about the power of understanding our patients through integrating early discussions on goals of care. Um, before, I want, before I get started, I wanted to ask you some questions. How many of you take care of children with potentially life-threatening illnesses? And um, how many of you routinely have discussions on goals of care with them? Okay, and have any of you heard of the Serious Illness Conversation Guide? Okay, good, so there's a few people. Um, so I got interested in this subject as, so all of you know I'm going into critical care, and I got interested in this subject as I started thinking more about children that I will meet in the ICU, um, whose disease process we will not be able to cure, and who, despite receiving the best care that we can provide, will die. I started thinking about how we can support these patients and their families through this really difficult time in their lives. And I also started thinking about how I might be able to prevent causing unnecessary trauma, pain, and suffering when I meet these children in the ICU. Um, and I think there are some answers for us in early goals of care discussions. So um, full disclosure, 
I'm not a palliative care specialist, nor do I have years of experience in having these conversations with families. Um, and I know that they are very difficult, but I've learned a lot in this process and I'm excited to share it with you and to share some tools that I have found very empowering as I think about having more of these discussions in the future. Um, my objectives for today will be to, we'll talk about what exactly is a goals of dis care discussion and who needs it. Um, we'll review some literature. We'll then review a couple resources, paying particular attention to the serious illness conversation guide um, that was, uh, came out of the Ariadne labs. So what is a goals of care discussion? Um, I'm going to give you a really simplified description right now, um, and that's to kind of just highlight the important features of it. And then as we kind of go later into this talk, we'll talk about the nitty gritty details. Um, this description that I'm going to give you, I've adapted from um, a guide by the Conversation Project, which was actually designed to help parents have these discussions with their children. So I think a goals of care discussion is a conversation that allows the care team to understand a patient and their family's wishes to the fullest extent possible and make sure that those wishes are respected when developing a care plan. So this is a, a very simplified description, but it gets to the heart of what matters in that um, we need to elicit the wishes of our patients and then we really need to respect those when we determine a care plan. Um, I also like this description because um, it's pretty much applicable to any patient that we ever see, right? We should be eliciting their wishes and their values, and that needs to be taken into consideration when we give them a plan or when we decide on a plan. Um, and that highlights the fact that our patients don't need to be imminently dying in order to have these discussions. And that's where I'm going to kind of focus on the, er the advantages of having these discussions early. Um, if parents have time and if patients have time to process this information and these thoughts, um, they're more likely to be able to give us these answers about what really are their wishes and their values. These are difficult questions to answer, um, and it's harder to think about it if we're kind of freaking out because we think the child is going to die really soon. So we need time. Um, Next, what is the population of patients that need these discussions? Um, the general consensus is that any child with a potentially life-threatening condition um, should have early involvement of basic palliative care, so basic discussions on goals of care. Um, in the US, every year there are an average of about 500,000 children with life-threatening illnesses, and about 50,000 will die every year. Um, so, let's see, I don't know if I can navigate this. Um, so this can be split up into a few categories. Um, the first category of conditions is gonna be children with, cure, with conditions that where there is a curative treatment that is available, but it might fail. And so this includes cancer, solid organ transplants, um, or some types of congenital heart disease like hypoplastic left heart syndromes. Um, the next category is chronic, potentially pro progressive conditions um, that require intensive long-term treatment to maintain a quality of life. 
So cystic fibrosis, severe immunodeficiency, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and other progressive neuromuscular diseases. Next, there's non-progressive irreversible conditions with an extreme vulnerability to health complications. So that's children with severe developmental disabilities, um, severe cerebral palsy, hypoxic brain injury, um, or brain malformations. And then the final category is progressive conditions without a curative option. So trisomy 13, trisomy 18, type 2 uh, osteogenesis imperfecta. And um, what I think is important to reflect on in this slide is that these are really, we're all, kind, we're all seeing these patients. Um, they touch a lot of different specialties, and um, we all develop um, longitudinal relationships with them because we tend to see them repeatedly over time. And so that brings me to looking at, I wanted to look at the focus of care across the illness continuum for these patients. Um, on the left side of the screen, so you have health, and then as you progress to the right, um, you have progression of the disease process and also of time. Um, so at the beginning, before diagnosis, we're primarily focusing on prevention, and this is through routine well-child checks. Um, it can actually even be through prenatal care if the diagnosis comes earlier. And then you have diagnosis where the focus of care shifts more towards curative and life-prolonging care. Um, however, the general consensus and recommendation is that even at the beginning at diagnosis is when we start involving um, palliative care. So, and what, I re and what I'm referring to here is basic palliative care that can be provided by a non-palliative care specialist, so us. Um, and that's to emphasize that we are both, we are thinking about curative and life prolonging care, but we're also thinking about symptomatic treatment. We're thinking about psychosocial supports that a family needs after diagnosis. We're thinking of spiritual needs that they need after a diagnosis. And the advantage of including all of this early on at the time of diagnosis is that from the beginning, we are emphasizing that, that quality of life is important from the start. And then you also, um, kind of minimize that effect of, okay, right now we're only focusing on curative care, and then suddenly we have to make this rapid change to palliative care, and it's kind of done in a hurry, and parents are afraid, and they're not ready to actually start thinking about quality of life and comfort and support, because they're too worried that that means that their child is going to die. Um, and we'll kind of revisit the slide um, throughout this talk. So. What does the literature say about goals of care discussions? First, I wanted to look at some of the barriers that are often cited. So time constraints. Um, we are all already pressed for time, and it's hard to add, for someone to ask us to, do, to add another thing to the long list. Um, lack of necessary skills and confidence amongst clinicians. Fear amongst clinicians that bringing up this issue actually may be harmful to patients, that bringing up end-of-life decisions or serious illness um, is going to be harmful to, the ch to children. Uncertainty about when it's appropriate to have these conversations. Um, confusion about who should be having these conversations. Um, there is a lack of systems in place to make sure that we have systems to implement these recommendations um, or to ensure quality. And then 
there's a shortage of palliative care specialists. So we can't, at time of diagnosis, refer everyone to a pediatric palliative care specialist. There just aren't enough. Um, so I wanted to kind of go a little bit deeper into each one of these um, and talk about more of the data. So time constraints. Um, I'm also now going to go into some of the data that came out of Ariadne Labs. So Ariadne Labs is the lab that developed the Serious Illness Conversation Guide that we'll talk about um, in more detail later in my talk. And I want to tell you some of the findings that, so they, uh, once they developed their guide, they developed a randomized control trial to look at what the impact and the outcome of their guide was. And so they looked at time constraints. They timed to see how long it took their providers to have a goals of care discussion um, after teaching them how to do it. It took only 22 minutes. That was very surprisingly short to me when I found out. We could have three of those within the span of my grand rounds almost. Um, and so this makes it seem much more feasible to me that I can do this for patients. Next, lack of necessary skills. This really resonated with me because that's, I know I'm planning on having more of these conversations. Um, and I don't really feel that prepared yet. I'm, it's, it's a difficult topic and there's a lot of variability in terms of training. Um, this study out of CHOP showed that there is a lot of variation in terms of the exposure that residents get to end of life care. Um, the range was two to 10 deaths in residency with an average of 5.6. Um, and obviously there's gonna be a lot of different comfort for a person who's had see, witnessed two deaths or taken part in the end of life care for two patients instead of 10. Um, however, Ariadne Labs trained their, it took only 2.5 hours of an interactive skill-based training session with palliative care specialists for them to train them to use a serious illness care, um, serious illness conversation guide. Um, next, let's look at fear of causing harm. This is repeatedly cited in the literature as one of the concerns that clinicians have about having these conversations with their patients. Um, and interestingly, it's also repeatedly cited that patients and parents are already thinking about end of life and have questions they're worried if their children are, is gonna die. And so they want to be having these conversations with us. This study um, that, uh, this study was done at Dana-Farber and it was looking at um, patients who were receiving care in their first year, um, oncology care at Dana-Farber. And they asked, they basically asked questions about communication, about prognosis, frequency of communication, and how that related to hope. And what they found was that actually, the more you communicate with patients, the more hopeful they are. And the more you communicate about prognosis, the more hopeful they are. And they also, there uh, was an inverse relationship between likely of, likelihood of cure to frequency of communication. So even, to hope, communication-related hope. So even if your patient has likelihood of a worse outcome, they still feel more hopeful when you communicate more with them. Um, 
And then next, there was looking at the effects of implementation of the Serious Illness Conversation Guide. So they found that patients who had these conversations, um, 14 weeks out from having this conversation, had an improvement in moderate to severe symptoms of anxiety and an, an improvement in their depression. These improvements of anxiety were still seen 24 weeks out from when they had their goals of care discussion um, initially. So there's a lot, of, a lot of evidence to show that talking about this is actually very beneficial to patients. Um, next, there is uncertainty about timing of discussions. Um, so we've already talked about that a little bit, but this study I thought was really interesting because they, um, so in this study, they actually asked teenagers after kind of they went through three 60-minute um, sessions on advanced care planning. They surveyed the adolescents and asked them, when do you think we should be having these conversations? And they said, 19% of them said, before I'm sick. I thought that was really interesting because it made me think, should we be having some of these goals of care discussions? There's aspect of it that you can elicit about values of, a pay of families that you don't even have to know what they're diagnosed, that they're going to get sick. And it's still valuable to have that information. 19% wanted to have these discussions at diagnosis. None of them wanted to talk about it the first time they ended up in the hospital. 25% wanted to talk about it when they were dying. And then 38% actually wanted talk, to talk, it, talk about it at all of the intervals. So, and again, I thought they were very smart to say that because that's actually what the, what the recommendation is. Um, so the policy statement from um, the American Academy of Pediatrics on pediatric palliative care and hospice care recommends that you initiate conversations early on and then that you continue to revisit them which is exactly what the adolescents wanted. So if we go back to our um, kind of illness trajectory, we can initiate the first goals of care discussion at diagnosis, and then we should be revisiting it at least annually in children with medical complexity. We should revisit it if it's ever requested by a patient or a family. We can revisit it with every hospitalization, and we should revisit it with any significant change in prognosis. Um, there's also confusion about who should initiate these conversations. And as I've already hinted at, um, and there is literature to, to show this, so again, this was um, a study out of CHLA where parents were interviewed on preferences. And they said that they really wanted to have these conversations with providers that they have a long-standing relationship with. Um, they don't want to have it with me, the ICU doctor. <laughs> they wanted to have it with someone that know, knew their child very well. Um, and that's, again, what I, essentially why I thought this was interesting to talk about and why I think the Serious Illness Conversation Guide is a really helpful tool. Because the Serious Illness Conversation Guide so this was the first um, intervention that actually showed that um, providers other than palliative care specialists or, psycho or psychologists could have a beneficial impact on, and could have these conversations. And, and it's designed to be user-friendly for non-palliative care specialists. Um, 
And this also ties into another one of the common barriers. There is a shortage of palliative care specialists. And so we can't, uh, so they can't kind of see all these patients the whole time. Okay. Um, so I wanted to, again, kind of look at where these conversations might fit into the illness trajectory. And so this part is where it, it fits that we can have basic palliative care that's provided by non-palliative care specialists or a PCP. And then as they kind of progress, it's going to make sense that the palliative care interventions are going to be a little bit more intensive, and you can consult, you know, involve palliative care intervention. Um, okay, and then the last one was lack of systems. Um, and this is something that the Serious Illness Conversation um, program really directly tried to target and improve. They are trying to implement systems and they are trying to distribute these systems so that we can all start using them a little bit more. Um, okay, and then I wanted to also look at the impact. Um, so the impact of the Serious Illness Conversation Guide, they found that it resulted in more earlier and better conversations. So more patients had at least one serious illness conversation prior to death. Conversations on average happened 2.4 months earlier. And 90% of patients had the opportunity to discuss goals and values. There's also some data that we can extrapolate from adults. So adult data has shown us that palliative care does not worsen survival. Obviously, we don't want an intervention that is going to worsen survival. Um, but palliative care has repeatedly been shown to not do that. It improves depression. It improves patient quality of life. And then there's also improved family outcomes. Um, because palliative care, um, it doesn't just go up to, until death, but it goes through to supporting families through bereavement. Um, Okay, and then there's one more study that I wanted to talk to you about. Um, oh, too fast. Oh, never mind. It's not working. Um, okay. Um, so I'm just going to pull all these up since it's not cooperating. So this study um, asked parents what sort of communication, uh, what types of domains of communication they found really valuable. Um, so first, they, we've already touched upon this several times, but they wanted relationship building. They want to have these conversations with providers that they're comfortable with. Um, and I already said how, you know, I'm going to be the ICU doctor and they're probably not going to want to have conversations with me because we're hopefully going to be meeting for the first time, although sometimes not. Um, but a way to mitigate that is to call the PCP and say, hey, do you want to come to this family meeting with me? Um, or make sure that we're involving specialists that have known the patients for a long time. They want us to demonstrate effort and competence. That, that makes sense. Um, they want information exchange. So they don't want just us telling them our thoughts. They want there to be an exchange. They also want us to be listening to them. Um, they want us to be available. And this makes sense because these issues are issues that need to be revisited. And so they want to be able to kind of process and come back to us and talk about it again. 
they want to be involved. So they want both their child and their parent to be involved. Um, so both eliciting family and child wishes for their future. Um, and then lastly, they want coordination of care. Um, this makes sense because these children are oftentimes at this point pretty complex and we want wraparound services. We want to make sure that all the providers are on the same page, that we're not, that we're giving clear communication. Um, Okay, let's see if my other next slide cooperates. I think this one might. Okay, so they also talked about harmful communication characteristics. Some of these are gonna be obvious, but some of these I think are important to talk about. So obviously they don't like disrespectful or arrogant attitudes, and I don't think any of us intend to do that. But obviously good to remember it. Um, again, they're really touching on the fact that they, it's not helpful if we're not establishing a relationship with the family. Um, next, they don't want us to break bad news in an insensitive manner, so we need to be thoughtful about how we're going to do it. Um, this is where I think it gets more interesting. They don't want us to withhold information, um, and that can lead to losing their trust. I think a lot of times when providers do this, um, they think they're actually helping the situation because they don't want to give misleading information. There is a lot of uncertainty in medicine, and that is a difficult part of what we do. Um, but this is showing us that patients are, and their parents are going to be more receptive if we are able to be honest about that uncertainty rather than just withholding information. Um, and then they also want to be prepared. So if we're changing the treatment plan and changing the treatment course, um, they want to be prepared before we do that. And that, again, I think can be mitigated through early discussions on goals of care because we can kind of tell them, okay, this is what the best case scenario for this diagnosis looks like. This is what the worst case scenario for this diagnosis looks like. And this is what's most likely. At that point, you've kind of prepared them for all of the different options of what they might anticipate. Um, but they definitely don't like quick, fast changes. Okay, so we're finally made it to the serious illness conversation guide that I'm going to share with you. Um, as I've already stated, it was developed by um, the Ariadne Labs, which was founded by Atul Gawande through a joint venture between Brigham and Women's and the Harvard School of Public Health. Um, they developed the guide, and then they, um, they tested it for four years. Um, and we've already kind of reviewed a lot of the data on that. <coughs> um, and uh, their implement their what they implemented. Um, so they, as we said, it was a two point five hour interactive session. They then sent a guide to families so that when they came to their appointments they were prepared to have these discussions. And then both the patient and um, the oncologist were supportive with, supported by palliative care specialists. So this is what our guide looks like. Um, Ariadne Labs has widely distributed this and made it available. Um, and this is what, uh, this is actually what our palliative care team here uses. I've chosen to show you the ICU version, not because I'm an ICU I'm going into ICU, um, but because that's where adults tend to um, tend to dis to have discussions with surrogates more often. 
Um, and again, that's also one of the limitations of this guide that I, I do want you to be aware of. So it's not pediatric specific, um, but at least the good thing about it is that it, it is definitely open to adaptation. So the framework is that on the left, there are five parts to the conversation. So you have set up your assessment, share, explore, and close. And then on the right, this is my favorite thing about this guide, is that there's phrasing that helps you move through this framework. As someone who isn't used to having a lot of these discussions, sometimes it seems so scary and overwhelming that I don't, can't come up with the words. And this guide is actually, again, as I said, they told families that they were gonna use these guides. So I have a laminated copy of this that I can carry around with me and refer to and look at during conversations with families um, because this is a lot to, to memorize at once. Um, and the way I was kind of taught is when you think about that we learn to write HMPs or take HMPs, we don't just kind of look at it, what the formatting is once. It, take it takes years and years. Do you hear an echo? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I just started hearing myself for the first time. Okay. Um, so it takes years and years to, to be able to do an HMP without looking at the formatting. It's the same as this. After years of, or, you know, after you've practiced it multiple times, you no longer need to look at this, um, but it is available to you. Okay, so let's kind of go through each of them. So setup. This is where you're basically asking permission um, and asking, is it okay if we have this discussion? I'd like to talk about what's ahead for your child's illness, and I wanna prepare in advance. Um, again, this is where you can tell them that you're gonna be using this guide, and you can tell them, I don't wanna miss any important information. That's why I'm using this guide. Um, and then if they're resistant or hesitant, you wanna make sure that they know you are hopeful for the best, but you want to prepare for the worst. They don't need to make any decisions today. And ultimately, the whole reason you're having these discussions is to benefit the family. Um, next is assess. So you want to assess both their understanding of where the illness is at now what they can anticipate about the future. And then you also want to assess how they want to receive information. Do you want to know dates? Do you want to know there's four months or a 10 month prognosis? Um, not all patients want to receive that information and find it helpful. Or do they just wanna know what that looks like? Is it just scary not knowing what the next steps of if their child were to deteriorate, what that would look like. Some people do find that helpful and want to know. And so it's important that this step that you can assess and actually ask them how they want to have information relayed. Um, then we share. So you, we share our understanding of the child's illness. This is also an area where we can kind of clarify if patients uh, if the parent's summary or perception of illness trajectory maybe wasn't very accurate, this is where we can get on the same page. But we've already elicited and we understand where they are at, and then we can kind of share our understanding of things and what they can expect. Um, if we're, again, I've sort of referenced this earlier, but if we're really uncertain of, 
about what the illness trajectory is going to be. We can talk about the best case scenario, the worst case scenario, and what's more likely. Um, and in my time working with um, the palliative care doctors, I learned that this can be a pitfall because I think we're very good at talking about the best case scenario. I think we oftentimes talk about the most likely scenario, but sometimes we talk about the worst case scenario and say, oh, but don't worry about it. We're not there yet. And that doesn't help pay parents process that that actually is a possibility. And so that's why it's, it's nice we can talk about the best case scenario, the worst, and what's most likely, and let them sit with that information. Um, okay. And then this is the meat of it. So this is where we start exploring their values. We ask them what goals are important if your child's health worsens. Do they really want to make it to their prom? Is it their graduation? Is it a birthday party? Um, what are their biggest fears and worries? Um, this is valuable because we can talk about it. We can help support them. We can elicit specific um, supports for this. What gives you strength? Um, we're just, so again, so that we can support them and encourage them to lean on what gives them strength. And I think these top three, these are the most, um, in, my, in my opinion, they're actually some of the most important. And these are actually questions that we can start, we can find out these things even before a child has a diagnosis. And I think these are also some things that we can probably feel more comfortable talking about with patients. Um, the, the next two are a little bit more specific to when you, you, the child is in the ICU or it really is getting quite sick. And so at that point, you can kind of assess, are there any abilities that are so critical that they couldn't imagine living without them? So for some people, that means if I can't recognize my family, if I can't have conversations with them, I'm not sure that I would want to go through more suffering. Um, and then there's also the question of, you know, if they became sicker, how much more would they be willing to go through to gain more time? Um, you know, would they be willing to be hospitalized another time for more time? Is there some level of pain and suffering that they want to go through so that they can make it to their graduation or that event that they're really excited about. And then finally, um, we can explore their relationship with family because and, and other supports um, so that they can, again, also not just have these discussions with us, but have these discussions with their family. Um, and then in the last piece, you want to kind of close the conversation. And this is where, so at this point, we've talked about the illness trajectory, and then we've talked about their wishes, and we can put those together to kind of, to make a recommendation about um, their treatment plan that makes sense. So let's say that we know that their illness trajectory, they, they could have some more treatments that would require inpatient hospitalization, and they've said, Yes, I am willing to be hospitalized more times so that I can make it to my graduation. 
uh, then we can give that recommendation. Or if they say, I don't want to be, no matter what, I don't want to be hospitalized ever again, then we would make that recommendation because doing that wouldn't make sense for them. Um, and then you also want to be supportive at the end and make sure that they know they have your support. Um, okay, so that's the Serious Illness Conversation Guide. Um, I wanted to briefly just show you two other tools, and they're actually designed to help parents talk about this to their children and help prepare parents for these conversations. So this is a pediatric starter kit. It's Again, a tool for having conversations with your seriously ill child. Um, and um, it's from theconversationproject.org. So this is a nice resource that you can give parents. And really, if you look through it, it's the same stuff that was on the Serious Illness Conversation Guide. So they can kind of work through it at a pace that feels comfortable for them. And then come when they feel ready to talk about it a little bit more. Um, there's also this website, the Courageous Parents Network, that is a, an amazing resource and has a lot of, um, you can, parents can look at, you know, advanced care planning, on trach decisions, it's a lot, and, and this is also very pertinent to medically complex children. Um, okay. So I wanted to pause here and kind of reflect on what we've talked about. We're nearing the end. Um, and so I don't, I don't pretend that having these conversations is easy. Um, it's really hard to take care of children that are dying. It's hard to have these conversations. Um, and as clinicians, it's really hard to reach a point where we have realized that the medical treatments that we have to offer are probably no longer going to improve our patients' pain or suffering. Um, and the reason I got really interested in this was because focusing on end of life and how I can support families in that time helps me cope with the fact that I have to take, the, the fact that children do die. And so I've shown you a lot of evidence as to how these conversations help patients and their family, but I also think these conversations really help us. They help us cope with the fact that we do have limitations in terms of medical care. And they help us support families through this really difficult time. Um, okay. So future directions. Um, if you are interested in being trained in the Serious Illness Conversation Guide, please email um, Max Virgo, who is... Um, the fellowship director of the uh, Palliative Care Fellowship here at Dartmouth. Um, he has given me um, he has given me a lot of guidance in this, um, and I really enjoyed my time working with the team. Um, also, if there is interest in pediatric specific training, um, 
I will be sending out a survey later to gauge what interest there might there is, and if there is enough of us, um, then we can develop. Uh, then Max and his team are basically willing to help coordinate some training sessions for us on more pediatric-specific um, communication training. Okay, spoke a little faster than I had planned, so I'm done. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm going to follow up with your last comment about what we can do better or differently at CHAT. Um, and in terms of residency education and medical student education, the study that you cited came out of CHOP, huge institution, quaternary care center. In their study, they had 193 residents exposed to about 579 deaths over a three-year period. Clearly, we don't have the volume to have that sort of exposure to our residents. And I'm going to contrast that to their um, initial study that they referenced in that CHOP article, which was published in 1984. So for residents in 1984, they were exposed on an average to 35 deaths over the course of their three years of training. That's compared to maybe two, four, five that you guys are exposed to now. So I'm wondering, given the infrequency of the events of pediatric deaths that we face in our careers now, to be honest, unless you're in certain narrow specialties, how can we make residency education applicable to all of us who go into all sorts of different specialties? Yeah. So there are a number of um, different people that are thinking about this. And um, we actually, we, I mean, we already do have a way to train for these low-frequency events. We do SIMS frequently, especially in this residency, we do a lot of SIMS and that are helpful. And we can also do simulation training in communication. Um, so there are brief communication training sessions, well, you know, day long, but then you can also simulate this repeatedly over time to build those skills and to build that comfort. And I think that's now as we see certain aspects of training and skill sets that we no longer frequently practice. Um, simulation needs to be incorporated a little bit more intentionally um, to kind of, so that we keep up these skills. But I, I, that's, that's the best answer that I have. Yeah. <clears throat> Kathy, one of the points was that if they know the family and the patient well, this, this is easier. And it seems like a wonderful place for primary care that was my second. I have lots of questions for Christina, but I tried to hold it until the middle. But that was one of my questions. Right. <laughs> you know them when you're, well, there's also. And I know the rest of the family, too. Right. right. And there's always this tension when it's a member of the treatment team who's having the conversation. Because you don't want to alienate the people that are literally saving the life of your child. Yeah. So sometimes I think it would be great if a third party who knows the family does not part of the actual the thing I wanted to comment on, though, is one of the latest things is thinking about co-production. And we approach all these things with this, you know, we have something to give. We're going to honor what they want. But the whole concept is one of us providing. And just change your brain work for a little bit and think about what can we do together. Mm -hmm. What is the role of the parent or the family in it? 
because it empowers them as well, which, you know, part of the terror of this is you lose control, right? Yeah. So to the extent that we use words like we instead of I, mm -hmm. um, or even call out specifically what parts would you like to do, would be wonderful. Yeah, and, then, and I think that's something that the Serious Illness Conversation Guide touches upon um, really nicely. It's all about eliciting what the family wants and what works for them. And it highlights that that's a really integral and important part of the care. I mean, I actually would say it's the most important part. Um, and so I, I really like about how having a conversation dedicated to tell me what's important to you so that we can figure out, we can prioritize as we make a plan. Um, and again, I, I, that's why I think we don't just have to wait to the end. We can do this early on because it does matter early on. And I think that is very empowering for parents. Thank you for that nice presentation. Um, it seems that your thoughts that these tools are aimed at situations where there is not a very short time between the onset of the illness and the time that these types of decisions and goals may have to come into effect in terms of the care and the goal and the treatment. Very difficult when there's an automobile collision with severe injury and a patient is admitted unstable to the hospital versus the diagnosis of cancer. Yeah. It also seems to me that it assumes an intact or at least functioning family unit, which is not always the case prior to any illness, and many times not the case once there's an onset of illness, even if the family may seem to have been capable of decision-making prior. You're going to come up against situations where you start this, and you'll get responses that will knock you off the chair. You won't know what to say next. They're at odds with each other, or they absolutely have no idea what you're talking about in terms of their value system. Mm -hmm. And maybe because of their mental stability, maybe because of their mental capacity, it may be on a religious basis. And when you start talking about end of life care that is it all out full steam save my child no matter what? They won't have anything to do. Yeah, so I actually um so the, a lot of the language that is used in the Serious Illness Conversation Guide, um, I mean, that, that absolutely is one of the limitations of it. Um, they are examples that are to be tailored to situations. So it's, it's, it is true that not everyone's going to fit in. I think the priority of the conversation is that you want, that's, those are actually the really interesting details about family that you want to find out because if they don't have an intact family and there is a lot of, um, 
difficulty communication, then you need to be aware of that because that impacts how we're going to support the family. So yes, a lot of the language may not be the perfect, but that's where it's about, this is about adapting it to the situation. Um, but really, I, I think the, the point, the message that I'm trying to convey is that it's through these conversations, we need to elicit that information um, and then tailor it to them. And I actually don't think that everyone needs to embrace end of life. Um, if a family tells me that I want, I can't accept, um, say, and actually one of the situations, one of the patients that I took care of um, about a year ago that made me think about this a lot was actually a family who culturally could not accept anything other than we fight, we fight, we fight. And we knew that he, this child had graft versus host that was not treatable and we had tried everything and he was on experimental medications and his disease process was still progressing. And the family said, we fight, we fight until we die. And that was distressing for some providers, but I think having conversations about values and goals helps us bring awareness, brings awareness to ourselves that, you know what, for this family, doing predominantly symptom management is not going to work for them. They are going to be at peace with the death of their child only if they know that they did everything they could and they fight until the end. Um, and so I think that's why there's a, there, every family is going to have different priorities in terms of do they want to talk about palliative care, do they want to talk about symptom management, um, or do they just want to do curative treatment. I my purpose in sort of having these conversations is not for me to have an agenda for them, but to have the conversation that asks, you tell me what you want to prioritize. Um, but I do agree that that is sort of, it, it's a, it can be a, a pitfall if we're not mindful of it. It also assumes, especially with these disorder of the God, that the person uh, initiating use of this guy, the professional, is always operating in exactly the same way, at the same level. And we're human beings. And you have fight with your child or your spouse, or you had some other horrible thing happen to you the day before. And not even on a conscious level, those things may impact you in the way you interact with the family. Going into it thinking that you're always going to operate on the same level with the same verbiage, even with a guy, I think is a bit simplistic. Yeah, I mean, it definitely has to be tailored to situations. It's it's not. Um, I mean, we can't follow scripts, right? We don't follow scripts when we talk to our patients. In the back, yes. Sorry, Max. Oh, hey, Max. Yeah. I, I just wanted to respond just because I think these are really great points. And I think the, the idea we, we talk about is this is really a scaffold and not a straitjacket. So it's really designed to be a helpful way that when you are dealing with stress, you can still try and deliver um, the components of a conversation that are important, even when you're dealing with and then the other piece I think is important is this was really designed to bring the floor up. So it's a value proposition of just can we make sure that we have more uh, consistent conversations with everybody, but you're still right, that doesn't fix the terrible family dynamics that exist. I think that's where this would just be just start and realize this isn't gonna 
This is not going to be the thing that helps them. I think I need the whole village to help me with this one. Um, but at least it gives you a structure to identify those people. And a lot of other people you care for, I think, that don't have those family dynamics. Just a, can I comment? Um, um, Dr. Berger and I sat through many ethics meetings and family meetings in adult care. And I want to say, you know, to Dr. Levin's point, this is not the role of just a single individual, usually, and especially if there's complex decision making, multiple dysfunctional family members present, a surgeon and a medical person who are differing in their approach to the care, that it really is imperative then to have all the players at the table to have a really robust family meeting, our care management teams across the institution are invaluable at sometimes helping to um, be the glue and be the people who can help negotiate all these different people who have an interest in the care of their loved one, their spouse, their child, their parent, anybody. I'd like to make, I, I, this was an excellent presentation, Christina, and I'd like to take the pieces that we could use in general pediatrics much more. So that there are a couple places where I think goal setting with parents is really important in determining how you're gonna care for your patient. If I get a breastfeeding mom for a newborn visit, I wanna know how long she wants to breastfeed so that I can support her to reach her goal. If she has to go back to work in six weeks, that's very different than if she's gonna be a mom who's gonna be home for the whole first year of life. If you're starting a child diagnosing ADHD, you need to figure out what's important to the parents. Do they like medicines? Do they like counseling? What do they want to do? So I think this question about goals is really important, not only in, it's a different setting than what you presented, but I think it's something that we need to do a better job of, take, of incorporating into our general pediatric care of patients. It actually reminds me a lot of, we talk a lot about shared decision making. Um, but I don't, I at least don't know of a very specific um, structure to having shared decision-making conversations and eliciting that. And that's what this reminds me of. Um, this is really all about shared decision-making. Yeah, I agree, and, and I there is definitely a lot of um, kind of a national interest right now, and especially um, end of life or goals of care discussions with medically complex children, which is a lot of what you're referencing. Um, and I thought it was interesting that um, the AAP actually has the recommendation that these goals of care discussions should be revisited annually. Um, and I think it is very important because there is 
it can be sometimes it, with these children, especially if they're admitted to the hospital so frequently, it can be hard to assess when you do have a change in prognosis or you do have a change in family perceptions and priorities. And so I think it's really important to revisit those conversations. Um, and and there definitely is um, there's a lot there is a lot of um, complex care interest in sort of figuring out how to do that best. I really appreciated how this, um, how your um, presentation today included that sort of piece about provider self-awareness and um, the other side of this process in terms of speaking to that sort of common humanity that we all have around these issues, um, how that kind of self-awareness can improve patient Thank you. Yeah, it was kind of nice.